0: Hello, and welcome to Multi-Level Mondays, a weekly series all about pyramid schemes, Ponzi schemes, multi-level marketing, and other forms of business fraud. I'm the Illuminati, and today we're actually gonna be talking about one of America's worst charities ever called Shiloh Ministries, and how they came to be as a whole, because it's really scammy. Although they shut down quite some time ago, I wanted to know just what the hell happened here and what earned them the title of the worst charity, especially since I've seen the Kids Wish Network and needless to say, I thought that was the worst. Now, as you'll come to see in a moment through today's episode, Shiloh Ministries has a bit of a tangled web and a pretty convoluted history behind it. What initially started as me being curious about their charity became a deep dive into what it really means when donations go into a shady fundraiser's pockets. Now, before we get too tangled up in today's topic, I do wanna let you all know that there are plenty of places out there with the name Shiloh Ministries as well, Shiloh Church, Shiloh Fellowship, you name it, Shiloh something, it probably exists. And while I can't speak to their reputation and I don't intend to, I wanted to make it very like, clear and upfront that this is a relatively common name that people go by and that these people I don't think have any relation to the one we're talking about today. So without any further ado, let's jump right into it. The name Shiloh Ministries was founded around 1994 and later run by a man named Otis Ray Hope. He served as a pastor of the First Baptist Church in Warrington, Georgia. If you look up him or Shiloh International Ministries, you'll see plenty about the tax fraud, the scam, and all of that information. However, that's almost all you'll find. I can say in total seriousness that this easily makes my top five list of topics when it comes to struggling to find information and articles about them. In fact, there's very little said about Otis aside from the scam itself. And though there's information about the fraud, there's next to nothing about the church or charity's history. And this obviously sends a ton of red flags up for me for some pretty obvious reasons. First and foremost, the scam that we're talking about today didn't operate in the thousands of dollars range. If a handful of people lost a few hundred dollars, I could understand why that may not be making national headlines, even if it's still a scummy thing to do. But the numbers I saw thrown around were in the millions. So why aren't more people talking about this? And why isn't there more information to this day? Well, that's because Otis Ray and Shiloh International wasn't just one charity. They went by many names and had many affiliations. So today we're not only talking about Shiloh International Ministries, but the Handicapped Children's Services of America, Americans Veterans Network, Adolescent AIDS Foundation, and the Help Hospitalize Children's Fund as well. All of these charities in essence are nothing more than scams. Also, I want to note that though Otis was apparently a minister in Georgia, this court case took place in Baltimore and sources say that the charity itself was headquartered in Laverne, California. In case you can't tell already, this episode is going to be a bit complicated. Still, we're in this together, so let's try to break it apart one piece at a time. And let's begin by going back to the beginning at Shiloh's roots. Our story actually begins in 1987 with a man by the name of Mitch Gold. To basically summarize his and Otis Hope's relationship, Mitch was an expert charity scammer that taught Hope, like many others like him, everything he needed to know how to do these scams. Back in the late 80s, gold went bankrupt, franchising T-shirt shops in Orange County, California, and was starting to earn a national reputation as the coast of for fraud. The Orange County Register described it as a feeded Petri dish for crooked banks, phony investments, and prize scams. The county was notorious enough to earn the starring role in a 1990 congressional hearing on fraud. One 1989 article from the LA Times attributed this to the economic revolution wrought by the Reagan administration, which made itself felt in all areas of commerce. Though there were new freedoms at the time, such as deregulation of banks, market level interest rates, tax reform, deregulation of airlines and the like, these freedoms also led to abuses. The defense buildup gave rise to military procurement scandals. Banks and thrifts were racked by fraud and mismanagement, failing by the hundreds. Airline deregulation also brought a plate of consumer complaints about poor service and inadequate traffic control. The de-emphasis of regulatory enforcement created an environment in which stock market manipulation, insider trading, and investment fraud flourished. Merger mania piled huge debt on many companies which laid off employees and sold assets to cut costs. And Orange County reflected all of it, the good, the bad, and the ugly. The decade was marked by the increasing realization that business in the county has become an integral part of the region, the state, the national and international economies," said Mark Baldassar, professor of social ecology at UC Irvine. Charity scams were no exception. Some charities, such as a telemarketing scam by Stephen P. Olson, claimed to raise money for charitable groups such as the California Adolescent Recovery Ranch and the First Church of the Living God. In actuality, he swindled people out of $1.6 million. Joe Schamberg, another felon and protege of telemarketing king Mitch Gold, as one source puts it, also spent six years in prison in the late 80s and early 90s when he attempted to hire a hitman to kill not only former business partners, but his own father. Thankfully, the hitman he hired was actually an undercover FBI agent, yet, even after the arrest, he still controlled charities. He was just careful to keep his names off the books. The charities signed management contracts with SR1 Financial Services of Santa Ana, which Schomburg had formed in the late 2000s. SR1 guaranteed the charities a set amount and then signed lucrative fundraising contracts with telemarketing companies that raised money nationwide in the charities' names. For example, in 2004, telemarketers raised $1.45 million for the American Veterans Relief Foundation. After SR1 and the telemarketers got their share, the foundation just got $12,725. That's a little under a penny on the dollar. So many of these charities, from Shiloh to the American Veterans Relief Foundation, all had one thing in common, Mitch Gold's fundraising strategies. The Gold Strategy, ironically named. Mitch Gold was no small player in this world. He may not have had a seminar on how to run a charity scam, but he was absolutely teaching others and reaping the benefits of their profits. Gold built a money-making scam machine reaping $10 million a year through 84 subcontractors for two dozen charities in at least 28 states. And let me remind you, these are supposed to be charities. You know, organizations that we like to believe are a bit more transparent and helpful than regular businesses. There are fantastic charities out there, of course, but Shiloh Ministries and others that were just using these fundraising tactics just give all charities an awful name. Hell, Shiloh Ministries International, as it turns out, is probably the least of our worries today. Even though we're absolutely going to talk about them, they were essentially a symptom or a sign of this much, much bigger charity scam ring going on behind the scenes. So what exactly was Mitch Gold teaching people? Aside from how to commit fraud, of course. Well, it was pretty simple. He had a formula he perfected to play on people's sympathies. First, find or create a small struggling charity with an appealing name, a generic name, one that gets people's attention, such as American Veterans Network, or perhaps help hospitalized veterans, for example. Next, create fundraisers that tie the name to one of a litany of causes. Wheelchairs for children, bulletproof vests for cops, death benefits for widows, you get the picture. Then when the money starts rolling in, primarily from telemarketing, the fundraisers will let the charity get just enough cash to keep regulators at bay. Most of the money earned will go right back into those fundraisers' pockets, as well as fundraising expenses, giving Mitch Gold and his various protégés a nice, fat, hefty salary. According to one of my sources that explains this process, One doesn't have to create a charity from scratch to get an appealing name. It's easier to persuade an existing charity to simply register some attractive business names. In May, 2001, former gold courier, Adam Cohen, signed a fundraising contract with Emanuel Outreach Ministries. The contract listed a half dozen business names for Emanuel, including Hospitalized Children's Fund, Help for the Homeless Program, and Hear the Cry of the Children International. Over the next two years, Cohen raised $1.1 million nationwide. The manual, which drew about 50 people to Sunday services, got 105,000, according to state reports. Shiloh International Industries, a former gold client, had five business names, including Adolescent AIDS Foundation, American Veterans Network, and Help Hospitalized Children Fund. The names were fantastic, said William Borland, a retired Pebble Beach stockbroker who sometimes got three calls a day from former gold associates representing children, veterans, and firefighters. It was everything that touched the human heart. And with names like these telemarketing was easy money and one-sided contracts made this charity into a true lucrative business. A gold style charity contract guarantees a charity a set amount or fixed percentage of the take, rarely more than 15% and sometimes far less. To top it off, the fundraisers like gold who would own the donor list. So in other words, gold would present himself as a savior to small charities that he represented or created. Yet gold and his fundraising subcontractors were only lining their own pockets. Hell, according to the FTC, in some instances, Gold had never even paid the charities at all. Yet he would actively tell these donors on the telephone that the majority of the money they were donating was going to the charity itself. Whether that was in the telephone scripts, in the thank you letters, brochures, Gold did nothing but lie to these donors. There was no, hey, we're going to take 5% off the top to pay our services. Instead, it was more like, let us use your name to raise money. And if you're lucky, you might see some of it back. Frankly, I'm curious and doubtful that Otis Hope or Mitch Gold even cared about these causes to begin with. It seemed like he was just throwing names around to see what would stick and make more money. Also, as a bit of an aside here, it's worth noting that so, so many Mitch Gold charities sounded very similar. After all, supporting veterans is a massive and common theme for charities. So Gold preyed upon that consistently. Not only was American Veterans Network a name for Shiloh Ministries, but other Gold clients had incredibly similar names, such as the following. American Veterans Assistance Council, American Veterans Assistance Foundation, American Veterans Coalition, American Veterans Council, American Veterans Help Fund, American Veterans Relief, American Veterans Relief Fund, and American Veterans was a charity, and it seemed like Mitch Gold or one of his clients was just turning that one into just a scammy charity. Of course, there are those who disagree with this being a scam, such as Gold himself, for starters. Mitch Gold has claimed that, quote, we are legal, we are licensed, we are bonded, and no charity has complained, end quote. If it's legal, then he certainly wouldn't be getting prison time for this, but more on that in just a moment. Mitch Gold stated that his contracts are transparent and the state just doesn't like telemarking. Yet he sees this as doing a good deed, helping out a new charity and only making a minor profit. The LA Times wrote in 1992 the following, The bottom line is that about three and a half to 4% actually goes to my pocket as profit, he said. Everything else goes to the cost of raising funds. When you've got 13 offices, you've got 13 rents, 13 electric bills. It also means you've got 13 managers, 13 assistant managers. We run a very good organization here. We spend money to do things the right way. So out of that huge chunk of 90%, almost 50% of that is payroll. Then you're looking at five to 10% in phone bills and on and on and on. So with all our overhead, only about three and a half to 4% is profit. Gold said the attorney general's office has been trying without success to prove he has embezzled some of the charitable donations. Of course, a payroll and bills and rent on a building is all going to take up some cost. There's no doubt about that. However, can one really say that gold is doing things the right way when 10 cents or less on the dollar is actually going towards that good cause? Not to mention, even if hiring fundraisers is necessary for these charities to get the word out, the general standard I've seen is that it shouldn't cost a charity more than around 20% for fundraising expenses. Much more than that, and you're starting to enter some seriously questionable waters. By Charity Watch's calculations, every single one of these charities that Mitch Gold was working with should have been rated an F by quite a wide margin of error too, on account of how much they spend on fundraising. Of course, there's still some that disagree with that side of Mitch Gold, namely his clients, obviously. One even specifically called out one of my sources at the Orange County Register and said that these methods are a necessity for nonprofits. In one of the later hearings about this particular scam, one of these charity owners, Mr. Friend, and yes, his name is actually Mr. Friend, testified in support of Gold. In the fiscal year of 2006, he reported to the IRS that 59 cents of every dollar donated to the American Veterans Coalition was actually spent on fundraising costs. He also stated that, quote, "'Unfortunately, the only way a small startup charity "'can exist and move into the spectrum "'of making direct support with its own tap base "'is using professional fundraisers. "'Their fees are exorbitant. "'I mean, we are probably between 80 to 85% "'with any professional fundraiser "'that we bring into our fold.'" As Mr. Friend and another charity representative, Mr. Davis, both explain, "'They get a higher net amount "'using these professional fundraisers, "'even if less money actually goes to the charity itself.'" So just as an example, let's say they got a $100 donation using these professional fundraisers. Only $20 of that at most would really go towards the veterans. However, it's really better than the $10 they may be able to raise on their own, even if a majority of that money goes towards the cause itself. Again, this is just an example. Please don't think these numbers are exact because they are not. This is just an example. Uh, It seems to obviously vary between charities. Still, 85% is the most common number I have seen thrown around for what these professional fundraisers charge. And the defense no one is forced to contribute is one of the most pitiful I've ever seen, honestly. First and foremost, it doesn't matter if no one is forced to contribute to your charity. They've used deceptive practices to gain money. That's the situation, black and white, plain and simple, period. If this charity had told everyone over the phone that 15 cents on the dollar goes towards veterans, at least they'd be honest. I could give them credit for that much. Secondly, these professional fundraisers are kind of despicable. I can't speak to the intentions of the smaller charities that they've worked with. Maybe they could have signed up and regretted it, or maybe they were just genuinely trying to raise money. I don't know, and the truth is that I can't know, but it still seems like a bit of a gray area, at least when I look at these hearings. However, the intentions of the fundraisers themselves, as well as the charities who are run by the students of gold are far more greedy. After all, Shiloh International Ministries produced this brochure that did admit that it received only 15 to 20% of the gross amount raised by its outside commercial fundraisers. Yet it justified this, claiming that these numbers stand to reason because, the fundraiser is responsible for most fundraising costs and that it did not hire an outside company, it still would have the fundraising campaign expenses that would have to be covered by a large portion of the money raised for its various programs. Shiloh's brochure also says that the important thing to remember is that you are helping children that need your support. Without your generosity, many needs would go unanswered. The brochure naturally neglects to mention that donors could meet more needs by just going literally anywhere else. Donating to a charity or a fantastic cause shouldn't bring people so much pause. And yet it's because of horror stories like these that it makes it hard to think and make you really question, where is your money actually going? And make no mistake, this type of fundraising is still happening to this day. It just isn't a thing that Mitch Gold did in the 80s and 90s. The New York attorney general, for instance, put out a press release in 2019 that read, "'Attorney General James today released the annual Pennies for Charity, Where Your Money Goes, fundraising by Professional Fundraisers Report,' which found that nearly one-third of charity donations ended up in the pockets of professional fundraisers. This year's report looks at fundraising trends, such as the rise of online giving, as well as the percentage of funds raised that went to charities. New Yorkers are generous in their charitable giving, but unfortunately not all the money they donate reaches the charities that they intend to help, said Attorney General James. Too often charitable dollars are pocketed by outside fundraisers rather than reaching the charity and furthering its mission. I urge all New Yorkers to be careful and to report suspicious entities to my office. In January, 2020, Reuters also put out an article about how major fundraisers also keep the vast majority of donations. Alexander Leffler, 21, who worked at one of these call centers near Birmingham, Alabama, described the high pressure deceptive tactics and stated, the motto was leave your morals at the door. We kind of all understood what we were doing was wrong, but I needed a place to live. The call centers in Alabama, along with others in Nevada, New Jersey, and Florida, raised money on behalf of scam packs slang among critics for political action committees that purport to support worthy causes. But in reality, hand over little of the money for political or charitable purposes. Instead, the bulk of the money is kept by fundraising firms or the people running the PACs. The PACs examined for this article typically handed over less than 10% of their take, sometimes less than 1% to candidates or causes. Aside from the lion's share that went to for-profit fundraisers, many of the PAC operators took a slice for salaries and overhead. It's disheartening to have to say, hey, look out for charities, but this has been happening for decades. We don't have to look any further than Mitch Gold to know that. If you want to donate to a worthy cause, your best bet is to actually look up the organization and donate to them directly if that's something you want to do don't give into high pressure sales tactics that tell you to donate right that second over the phone either, and never send cash. Unfortunately, Mitch Gold was an expert at these schemes and pocketing money for himself. One of these, the American Deputy Sheriff's Association claimed to raise money for law enforcement charities. In actuality, the money spent on these charities was as little as half a percent, 10% at the most. Since the court takeover, the ADSA spent 99.5 cents of every dollar it raised on marketing and administrative costs. The court-appointed attorney supposedly managing the association has been paid more than $200,000, the paper reported. Lawyer Jeffrey M. Lewis of Columbus, Ohio, told the Register he is required by law to honor the contract the association made with the telemarketing firm that pockets 90 cents of every dollar donated. The remainder, he said, is needed for his own management and investigation of the morass. Do I think it's moral, Lewis asked when contacted by the register? Of course not, but the court didn't ask me to make moral judgments. And so this is the type of business that was being run here. I get this lawyer is just trying to do his job, but let's admit it's pretty sad when even he calls the contract he's managing immoral. Mitch Gold was running an incredibly lucrative, scummy fundraising business that did little to actually help charities. If you ask me, it really did give them a bad name more than anything else. Of course, these are the tactics that Shiloh Ministries and all the other names that went by used. That much is brought up in court during Mr. Friend's testimony as Mr. Friend met Gold himself through a connection with Shiloh. So now that we know the connection between Shiloh and Mitch Gold and what kind of scam was being run here, we're going to start to finally dip our toes into how this finally stopped and the consequences that were faced. But before we get into the lawsuit and getting caught up in everything and the jail time and all the fun stuff, let's take a quick moment to thank today's sponsor. Canva Pro is the absolute game changer that is making digital design a lot easier to work with. And I would know because I've used them for years. Canva has been my backbone when it comes to most editing. That includes my thumbnails, even my banners on various YouTube channels. Everything has literally been made with Canva, which I think is pretty cool that they're actually sponsoring me because I've just been using them for years. Canva Pro is the easy to use design platform that has literally everything you need to design like a pro. And they have like everything, including over 75 million of premium photos, videos, audio, and graphics plus Canva Pro comes with time-saving tools that simplify and speed up the creative process and you get all of this and more in just one Canva Pro subscription. So, design like a pro with Canva Pro. Right now, you can get a free 45-day extended trial when you use my promo code. Just go to canva.me/mondays to get your free 45-day extended trial. That's c a n v a.me/mondays. canva.me/mondays, canva.me/mondays. This episode is also sponsored by Upstart. If you're carrying a credit balance month after month, it can feel like a never ending cycle of debt and Upstart can help you make that final payment so you can get ahead. If you dread looking at credit card statements, you're not really alone. Debt can feel absolutely crippling, but Upstart can be a good starting point. Upstart is the fast and easy way to pay off all your debt with a personal loan all online. Whether it's paying off credit cards, consolidating high interest debts or funding personal expenses, over half a million people have used Upstart to get one fixed monthly payment. And Upstart knows that you're more than just a credit score and is expanding access to affordable credit as well. Unlike other lenders, Upstart considers your income and current employment to find you a smarter rate for your loan. With a five minute online rate check, you can see your rate upfront for loans between 1000 to $50,000. And you can receive funds as fast as one business day after accepting your loan. Find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com MLM. That's upstart.com MLM. Don't forget to use our URL to let them know we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based on credit, income, and certain information provided in your loan application go to upstart.com slash MLM. COBRA, or the County of Orange Boiler Room Apprehension Task Force, was designed specifically to stop people like Mitch Gold and Otis Hope. It was named Boiler Room Apprehension Task Force after the rooms where questionable telemarketing solicitors work, also called boiler rooms. As we mentioned, during this time period, Orange County was known as being kind of like the capital of telemarketing fraud and a place where people like Mitch Gold were thriving. COBRA was launched in the mid 90s targeting these scams that preyed on elderly victims under the guise of charitable donations as well as fake sweepstakes winnings. It wasn't until 2001 that Mitch Gold was caught and subsequently indicted on September 5th, 2001. However, six days later on September 11th, national attention turned to the World Trade Center. COBRA was dismantled as the FBI quickly shifted agents and money to fighting terrorism. According to the OCR, in August, 2004, the Government Accountability Office reported that the FBI referred 23% fewer white collar cases to prosecutors in 2003 than it had in 2001 and opened 32% fewer investigations. The GAO said the data was inconclusive because other agencies, such as the US Postal Inspection Service and the Internal Revenue Service had stepped up investigations. The unpublished GAO research released to the register and reports by the Justice Department's Inspector General suggest the shift in FBI priorities could hamper investigations. Nobody else can do the sophisticated, long-term white-collar crime investigation that the FBI does, three top agents in the FBI financial crimes section told the GAO. We have the largest number of white-collar crime agents of any law enforcement agency. We have specialized expertise. A September 2005 report by the US Justice Department Inspector General warned of an investigative gap in federal efforts to combat telemarketing fraud. The FBI slashed a number of agents working telemarketing cases from 60 in 2000 to just 16 in 2004. No other agency filled the gap left by the FBI. Now, I'm not saying that the FBI doesn't care about white collar crimes. It's frankly understandable why the tragedy of September 11th would divert their attention. But I do believe that this is at least to some extent why it's been difficult to find information on these cases. There's a massive investigative gap and just as this news was breaking, September 11th changed the US as we knew it. And unfortunately, as COBRA was dismantled and the FBI's focus shifted, many of these charities began cropping up yet again and as bad as ever. The OCR wrote in 2007 that the nation's 500 least efficient charities at that time paid fundraisers made a combined $276 million. That's 88 cents of every dollar the charity spent in 2003. Only eight cents on the dollar was actually spent on the cause the donors believe they were supporting. Some of these charities were run by former gold associates or clients like Robert Friend and Shiloh International Ministries. Of course, because nothing about this episode is really all that simple, we've got to make things just a bit more complicated here. And so of course, that's what happened. So according to the FTC, a 2003 complaint was filed in the U.S. District Court of the Southern District of California against a company known as West Coast Advertising. The FTC site claims, West Coast Advertising and Marketing Inc. and its principals, Mike S. Thomas and Mark A. Christensen solicit contributions on behalf of a variety of nonprofit organizations, including the Junior Police Academy and American Veterans Network, a program of Shiloh International Ministries, according to the FTC. The San Diego-based company also does business as MTI, MTI Publications, Professional Fundraisers, and Professional Communications Network, and maintains offices or phone rooms in San Diego, San Marcos, and Escondido, California, the FTC alleges. The FTC's complaint alleges that the defendant's telemarketers falsely claim that JPA is officially connected with a local law enforcement agency that sends police officers into the donor state and local schools to conduct programs that benefit children. It's like these scammers believe that the more names they collect, the harder it'll be to track them down. I mean, to a degree they're not wrong because just trying to remember all of these names and untangle this web gave me one a hell of a headache. As I understand it though, Mitch Gold had all these clients, one of which was Shiloh International Ministries. Shiloh had all these programs, scams really, like the American Veterans Network. Shady advertisers, such as West Coast Advertising and Marketing, would solicit donations for them. Everyone following along? All right, good. Anyway, back in 2003, when this complaint was made, the FTC was trying to keep up with the array of scammy charities just going on. The FTC's response may not have been the Cobra Task Force, but it was still bad news for scam artists. Operation Phony Philanthropy enlisted 34 states, the Better Business Bureau's Wise Giving Alliance and GuideStar, all in the effort to stop fraudulent fundraising and to help donors avoid phony charities. In fact, as some sources reported, although September 11th drew the FBI's attention towards terrorism and away from white collar crime, many charity scams grew and worsened after the events of September 11th for more sinister reasons. Not simply because less attention was on them, but many of these scams seemed intent of taking advantage of people's goodwill and desire to help during troubling times. As one source states, in the immediate aftermath of the 2001 attacks, about 300 new charities were approved by the IRS, according to Charity Navigator. By 2006, one third couldn't be located and dozens had closed. Even the American Red Cross found itself in trouble when it raised close to $600 million but dispersed just 154 million, earmarking the rest for future organizational efforts. Scammers stole hundreds of thousands of dollars from Americans trying to help. Now, I can't know for sure if Mitch Gold or Shiloh International Ministries opened up or partnered with a charity devoted to 9-11 survivors or volunteer firefighters, or if they use these terror attacks to raise funds. They preyed on people's goodwill, absolutely. But I won't definitively state that they did it in that way since I don't have the evidence to back it up. All I'll say is that if they did, I wouldn't be surprised. Now, as for 9-11 charities, I think many of you know, I don't really speak publicly about many charities that I do donate to because I'm honestly really afraid that something will come later down the line and they'll turn out to be bad. And then people will be like, I told you so, but at the time I just didn't know. And as of right now, one of the charities that I do donate to is called Tunnels to Towers. It's t2t.org. And it's the story of a firefighter who literally ran through one of the tunnels towards the buildings as they were collapsing and he died. And this guy drove his truck to the entrance of the tunnel and he strapped on all his gear. He raced towards the Twin Towers and he died in process of trying to save other people. Now, my understanding is that Tunnels to Towers is considered a good charity. I have donated to them previously. And unless I find something like going on bad behind the scenes with their books, I'm probably gonna continue donating to them. So some of you ask, who do I donate to? This is probably one of the only times I'll mention some of the charities I donate to. Now, as for back to this hell hole that we're going back into, let's talk about where everything fell apart with Gold and Shiloh and everything. The order against Mr. Gold was a $10 million judgment. Okay, so just for heads up, we're millions of dollars here. As for his clients like Shiloh, it was only a matter of time until they fell right along with him. And disturbingly enough, it wasn't actually until 2009, eight years after Gold was actually indicted that the news about Shiloh Ministries even came out. Otis Ray Hope was 53 years old at the time, and he told the FBI everything apparently. According to Otis, he was hired in 1996 as the senior pastor for Montrose Baptist Church located in Rockville, Maryland. He supervised the school there as well as another educational component of the Paris called ESL or English as a second language program. Early on, people were apparently suspicious of Otis as well as his brother, Richard W. Hope. After all, even when Hope joined the church, he had a bit of a checkered past. Paul Berger, assistant director of the SEC's enforcement division, said that these were allegations against Hope since 1991. According to the SEC complaint, Ray Hope formed his own company, Alpha Investment Services, Inc., and used money from his own investors, some of them friends and family members, to buy debt securities from his brother's company. In court documents filed at the U.S. District Court in the district, attorneys for Alpha deny that Hope knew he was offering and selling debt securities. Copies of Alpha investment agreements from May 1990 to June 1991 show investments of as much as $125,000 at annual rates up to 60%. At the time, 30-year treasury bonds, a benchmark used in the financial industry, carried interest rates of 8.5%. While some members of the congregation seemed to be of the mindset that these were the only allegations until they were acted upon, many others were justifiably upset that the new minister wasn't more forthcoming with his congregation. As I understand it, he simply presented the whole case to them as a failed business. Yet despite these suspicions and the dissent among his congregation, Hope managed to hold himself together until a couple years later when it all came crashing down. The FBI writes, In 2001, Hope advised members of the church council that the ESL program could be more lucrative if it were expanded and operated as a separate corporate entity. The council took no action on Hope's suggestion and shortly thereafter, Hope formed a company of his own called the Maryland International Student Association to take over the management of ESL. MISA had no corporate minutes or general business ledgers and it never filed a federal or state tax return. Upon taking over the management of the ESL program, MISA substantially increased the price of tuition from approximately $7,400 to $12,500. From approximately June, 2001 to December, 2003, foreign students who were admitted into the ESL program at the Montrose Christian School wired approximately $1.35 million in tuition payments into MISA bank accounts, which Hope controlled. Other than to pay the salary of the ESL employee who oversaw the program and incidental expenses, little of the wired funds was used to pay the expenses of foreign students or the ESL program. Instead, Hope diverted much of the tuition payments from the ESL program, spending the money on personal expenses for himself and members of his family, such as golf outings, a family vacation in Hawaii, meals at restaurants, plane tickets, car payments, renovations on family-owned real estate, and investments in Shiloh Ministries. When members of the Montrose School Council learned that ESL's expenses were not being paid in full, they confronted Hope at two church council meetings in September, 2002, and after he admitted his conduct, accepted Hope's resignation. Hope filed joint tax returns in 2001, 2002, and 2003, in which he failed to report the expenditure of approximately $958,236 of MISA tuition receipts and personal and family expenses resulting in the evasion of $287,131 in income taxes over those three years. Now that would be horrific enough, but it doesn't end there. Otis Ray Hope learned from the worst after all, Mitch Gold. In 2006 and 2007, Otis was one of the trustees of Shiloh Company and at some points even served as its president. In June, 2006, before Otis became a trustee, there'd been a fire at the center. As a result, about $108,000 were held in escrow by a lender for renovations, restoration, and environmental mediation. Otis Hope, however, saw this as an opportunity. He and a co-conspirator decided to apply for a commercial loan of $1.75 million on behalf of the Shiloh company. Of course, in order to receive the loan, they'd need to prove that the company was open for business again. It wasn't, but that didn't stop Otis. Instead, he submitted fake financial statements to the bank overstating their assets and cash flow, submitted a bogus corporate resolution and fraudulent minutes or corporate meetings that never took place, all in order to give the impression that the board of directors and trustees of the Shiloh company had voted to authorize the application for the loan. I have absolutely no idea how Otis thought he would get away with this. Maybe there's a piece of the puzzle I'm missing here, but just literally falsifying documents to a bank for a loan that he had no intention to pay back seems incredibly stupid. Otis was sentenced to just 37 months in prison, followed by three years of supervised release for conspiracy to commit bank fraud. He was also ordered to pay restitution of more than $2.4 million. Now, although I'm thrilled that Otis and Mitch are behind bars, the story isn't really over here. Gold has repeatedly failed to make monthly restitution payments, and he's been dishonest about his finances with probation officers. At least that seems to be the latest news we've heard about them. While neither Mitch Gold, Otis Hope, Mr. Friend, Mr. Davis, or any other player in this game is solely responsible for the fundraising charity scam that plagues charities to this day, they absolutely contributed to it. They helped make it the massive scam that it is and turned it into the dumpster fire of a legacy that they have to leave behind with their names emblazoned on it. But with all of that being said, that's where we are ending today's episode of Multi-Level Mondays. I hope you enjoyed taking a look at this just massive charity scam situation that happened in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s as much as I did. It was fascinating and disturbing at the same time. So if you did enjoy this episode, make sure that you're liking, following, and subscribing so that you can stay up to date on all the latest episodes. And if you wanna follow me outside of these episodes, make sure you click my Linktree link in the description box. It will pop up a neatly organized list for all of my social media, including my Twitter, Instagram, uh, Discord server, Twitch, you name it, it's all there. So again, thank you all so much for making it to another episode and I'll see you in the next one. Bye. I